majority of you know that it is my habit to try to preach series of sermons through biblical books most of the time. We've been in the Gospel of Matthew for a long time. In fact, numerically speaking, I think the uh, saying that this is the 82nd sermon in this series makes it one of the longest series that I've ever brought to you to go through this rather long book, and even then we haven't covered every paragraph in it. If you really want to know how long it is, this series started in a different sanctuary. We will be in this sanctuary now two years around Labor Day, and I had been a few weeks into this series in August of 2006, just before we came into this sanctuary. So that uh, makes it seem like a long time. I had hoped to actually finish it before I went on a month-long vacation, but it didn't work that way. So I come back now today to the very last standing paragraph of Matthew in chapter 28, a short paragraph but one of vast importance, as I think you know, and ask that you consider these words of Christ, the risen Christ. The context, of course, is that this is after Christ's resurrection before His ascension to heaven. Anything that someone says among the very last things that they say and knowing that there's a parting coming ought to be regarded as quite important. So listen to the Word of God as I read this last section of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, beginning at verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we can say amen to this great book that we are studying and are completing together today. Let us pray for a moment. Father, I ask that these familiar things we have heard many times before, I pray that you bring them alive to us. and Let us see the importance of the task you have charged us with. In the power of your Spirit, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's told that many years ago, an American missionary went to the country that was then called Burma to preach the gospel and teach and help with the founding of indigenous churches in that land. One time, this individual had been teaching in a relatively unevangelized village where the gospel was still a novelty to people, and they were hearing it for the first time. And of course, he told them about God's unique Son, how He was born, how He died, how He rose, and what all that meant. And after the missionary had spoken, a local Burmese leader came, a village official, I believe he was, to ask a question. And the man said this, he said, Sir, what you tell us is a wonderful tale. It, this story of Jesus is just a wonderful thing. But if what you say about him is true, we all wonder 
Why have we never heard this before? If Jesus was actually the Son of God himself who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago, the man said, why did my father or my grandfather or their ancestors, (coughs) why did they never hear of this through all of those centuries? He said, surely, if anything so grand as this story is true, someone would have told my people about it a long time ago. Well, the missionary had to confess to himself as he heard this question that it left him feeling ashamed. As he thought about the many centuries in which the inbred cowardice, you could only call it, of the church had not reached out and had not told people about Christ. And I wonder how you would have answered that village leader when he said, why in the world didn't somebody tell us this a long time ago? Surely, you see, since the gospel of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus is true, then every tribe in every corner of the globe should have heard about it a long time ago. But we know they have not. And that brings us to consider this last commandment of Jesus before his ascension to heaven in a passage that we call his Great Commission here in Matthew 28. Now, it's possible as you scan this passage, even in the way it's structured, in the way the paragraph is set apart as you look at the page of your Bible, you could say, well, this looks like something (coughs) almost entirely separate from what immediately precedes it, the events of Easter, the resurrection, and the guards, and their cover-up story. This looks like something completely different. And in fact, if your mind was a little skeptical, you might even look at it and say, It almost looks like an appendage uh, or an afterthought, something kind of tacked on here that isn't entirely related to the earlier part of this chapter. I want you to go away today, if possible, believing me when I tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. I want to have you understand that this paragraph is absolutely a conclusion and summary not only of the resurrection of Christ immediately preceding it, but really of everything Christ has been revealing about himself through the entire Gospel of Matthew. And in fact, you could understand, at least intellectually, all the other parts of Matthew and all the other doctrines that are taught in the life of Christ. And you could say, yes, I have a pretty good idea about Christ coming to die and the necessity of the cross and his resurrection, and wow, I'm just feeling great that that he did this for me. And you might, without this last paragraph of Matthew, assume that it was all for you, that the gospel was just for satisfying your needs and answering your questions and providing you with spiritual comfort and assurance. But without this last paragraph, you would miss the fact that Jesus became incarnate in the flesh of a human being as the Son of God to come and now be elevated to a new position as the commanding Lord who sends out his salvation for many, many other people beyond yourself. 
Christianity is not all about you. It includes a call to sacrificial giving and sacrificial going and passionate testimony about the truth of Christ to many nations so that they might know him as you do. And everyone who bows before Jesus as Lord is included as an addressee of this great commission. Now, I imagine you may know that there's few parts of the Bible that have done more than have this paragraph to give Christians the essential understanding that Christ desires a worldwide church. And he sends us to other nations and other peoples to bear this message of Christ as a living, risen, powerful, saving Lord and Savior. Stop and think a minute how the Gospel of Matthew began and tie it in with how it ends. It began tracing the fact that there had been a prophecy about a Jewish baby. A Jewish baby that was born in a rather obscure fashion, known only to the few people who were immediately involved in his birth. And then he came to be born with great fanfare and and announcement, but even that was contained in a fairly localized place. And then as an adult, he came forth, he began to teach and do miraculous things, but he was opposed, he was despised, he was ostracized, and then he was murdered. But now, after his splendid resurrection, the message of the Bible is (coughs) that this man Jesus, born as this little baby, now a man, now died, now risen, was indeed the king that he was prophesied to be, but not simply king of a little localized group of people called Israelites, but rather now king of the universe, reigning over all peoples and all tribes. And he himself told us that this is a truth that the whole world needs to hear because whether people in the entire world will acknowledge this sovereign as their sovereign or not is a matter that bears eternal implications for every single individual born on this planet. People need to acknowledge his lordship. They need to find out that he is the Lord. So I want to summarize the theme of this passage And as I do it, I want you to notice the prevailing way in which the word all, A-L-L, occurs in this passage. Here's how I summarize it. The Great Commission is based on all of God's supreme authority being delegated to Christ. He sends all disciples forth to find new disciples in all nations. All of God's Word is a message to be declared and obeyed by every disciple. And our success in being His witnesses is assured by Christ's presence with us all the time. Now, there were four propositions in that summary, and I'm going to try to develop them each briefly this morning. First, this one. The Great Commission is based on all of God's supreme authority being delegated to Christ. If you're in the military 
and uh, you're maybe an officer in uh, a battalion or a squad or some military unit, and you receive an order to go and attack enemy lines, of course, the military is based on a whole concept of chain of command, and the chain of command is obeyed. But of course, also, the officers in charge of your unit want to make sure that when they've received an order, that that order actually came from authorized higher authority. They're not going to risk the lives of a whole battalion of troops just because maybe some shaved tail second lieutenant said, gee, I think it would be a nice idea if we attacked. You know, if this is a major offensive, they want to know that the commanding general has given the order. And so authority to give commands is an important subject, and that principle is here before us in verse 18 where Jesus said an amazing thing. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, I say, I, the person who has all authority in heaven and earth, say to you, go. I want to point out to you that Jesus has said many astounding, amazing things. He makes claims that that people just scoffed at because they were so great when he made them. I can't think of anything he said that, that is a greater, higher, more amazing claim than to say, I have all authority in heaven and earth. And it's implied in this text that he has it now, after the resurrection, in a way that he did not have it before. He makes a claim here that he is able to command things that happen both in the heavens and on the earth. Now, as we look at what is being commanded in the Great Commission, it's important to remind you that it really is nothing more than our Lord and Savior continuing the salvation errand of God the Father and God the Son that began early in human history and, of course, began in his heart and plan before that. We call this the covenant of God, the errand of God to go and claim for himself believers out of the vast mass of unbelieving and fallen men and women on this earth. The whole Bible, Old Testament and New, is united by this concept of the covenant of God. God's saving mission, you could call it, a rescue mission, in which he knows from all eternity that there are those who will respond to him and come to him out of their fallenness and out of their sin and respond to his Savior by faith. God went after these people. He didn't simply say, I I think maybe at some point they'll get up off their seats and come after me. He went after them, people who held him at arm's length, people who ran away from him. And it was when Jesus Christ died at the cross that this covenant rescue errand of God into humanity was sealed. And that was the central event that assured that now God had done for sinners what needed to be done, and all they needed to do was trust in Christ his Savior. Jesus, by his death and resurrection, has become the Lord of the covenant, the key figure of the covenant. Now, you might remember that as we've studied Matthew, more than once people came along and challenged Jesus. You know, he was doing a miracle or a healing or he said something, and somebody got right in his face and said, by what authority do you do that? Who gave you the power to do this? You know, they were always saying those kind of things. They were asking right questions. Where did your authority come from? 
Because authority, of course, means a right to command or a right to exercise power or to have rank or status and expect to be obeyed. And I want to remind you that not very long before this, in fact, right in the 27th chapter and the 26th chapter of Matthew, as we studied them in previous weeks, you have to think about authority in the hands of Jesus a little bit and think, well, what authority, what ability to rule over circumstances did he seem to have in the things that were happening around the cross? And you see, that was the very thing that they made fun of him. Remember when they said, come down off your cross if you can? In other words, they're saying, we don't think you have authority at all. If you did, you could get off the cross. You could avoid all this. And there he was, battered and beaten up and bruised, and it didn't look like he had any authority of any kind whatsoever to control even the smallest events of his own immediate circumstances. You see what the wonder of the gospel is? The wonder of the gospel is that God submitted his son to that position of looking like the helpless, beaten one so that now, following his resurrection, he could be elevated to what Philippians 2 calls the highest place of all. You see, God, if you you acknowledge that God exists at all, it's simply logical for a person to say, I acknowledge one great God. A logical corollary of that is that then that one great God has supreme authority. Nobody has more authority than God, right? We don't always acknowledge that. You know, a lot of times we act in our prayer lives in every other way as if we can tell God what to do, but we can't. God has all authority. There's a very important thing happening here after the resurrection of Christ. And Ephesians 1.21 tells you exactly what has taken place. The greatest transfer of authority in all of time. Ephesians 1.21 says, God raised Jesus from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in his heavenly realms far above all other rule, power, or dominion, and every title that can be given. And elsewhere it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess. You see what has happened? The Father has taken this son of his who was reduced to the very lowest most powerless state of influencing nothing, at least apparently so, and raised him to the very highest state and has given him the highest level of authority, God's own authority. He delegated to the Son his own absolute rule. Now, he didn't make Jesus the man into God. Jesus was always God. But he gave him this new office, the office of supreme commander that we summarize in one word, Lord. What is it to become a Christian? Why, it's to acknowledge the one supreme commander in all the universe, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he dominates every event of history, every government, every political campaign, every army, even the forces of nature. And that he is actually appointed as the final judge. He will be the one we will face at the end of history. Come before him as he sits on heaven's throne. So this first important point says that this great commission is based on the supreme authority of God being delegated to Jesus Christ. And that says to me, 
that the Great Commission is not the Great Suggestion. It's a command. And it's the command of the one who has authority over everything. Now, secondly, our text says this in developing the thought that Christ sends all of his disciples forth to make new disciples in all nations. Remember Jesus' reason for coming into the world. Luke's gospel says it was to seek and to save the lost. That search and rescue mission I talked about a moment ago. Well, Christ has ascended into heaven. He no longer walks the earth. Who's going to do the search and rescue mission? Jesus prayed in John 17, the night before the cross, and he said this to his father, Father, just as you sent me into the world, now I send my disciples whom you have given to me. He sends us with his authority, his power going with us in all our weakness to do this continued search and rescue mission. It's important to emphasize the words all nations. The Greek is panta ta ethne. Ethne is the Greek root from which we get the word ethnic or ethnicity. He sent us to all ethnic groups. You see, nations in this regard doesn't have so much the thought in it of a political unit. When I say nation, you think United States of America, Mexico, Great Britain. You think of some place you could locate on the map and draw boundaries around it. Well, that's not exactly it. The all ethnicities of Matthew means groups of people, whether or not they are a recognizable political unit. And you see, that's how God worked from the beginning in his covenant. He first took the ethnic group of Israelites, people without a settled country, people whom he called and he said, go out and let me be your God and let the nation see that I'm your God and I will bless you greatly and I will also bless the nations through you. You'll be my channel of witness. Well, the sad thing is that Israel went astray and decided that God was their exclusive possession and they completely forgot the idea that they were supposed to be a blessing to the other nations and they actually came to despise the other nations. And we have seen in Matthew how in the ministry of Jesus, God has announced to the temple authorities and the leaders of Israel that now that dealing with them as a corporate entity is set aside. Not that God doesn't save Jewish people or Israelite people today. He does, certainly does in individual ways, but he's not dealing with the nation of Israel any longer the same way as he did in the past. And here now, and we're going to see it even greater if we were to go to the book of Acts, God says the gate is obviously wide open from here on. My search and rescue mission of the covenant extends now to Swahilis, to Irishmen, to Russians, to Mandarins, to Malaysians and Brazilians and Koreans and Jamaicans and Iroquois, and you go on and on. Panta ta ethne, to every ethnicity in the world. You see, when John 3.16 said, God so loved the world, don't make a mistake and think that God loved the planet. He didn't love a round rock spinning in an orbit around the sun. He loved the people, all the people, all kinds of people 
who inhabit this planet that he made in his image. And Ephesians 2 brings an understanding when it tells us that in the cross, Jesus Christ actually broke down all the barriers of ethnicity, all the walls of partition that divide peoples one from another. Now we are one people if we know Christ. I don't think my African-American brother Stan Morton is present here today, pastor from this congregation who works in the city. What a wonderful brother Stan is. I've learned from him. I've grown from knowing him. Stan and I stood side by side, and I told you we have the same parentage. You would say, what? Your skin's not the same color. How can you be brothers? But I say to you, Stan Morton is my brother in ways that some people of my blood relation are not my brothers. Stan has my spiritual DNA. He has my father for his father. And we know together that in Jesus Christ, every wall that could make us any different doesn't matter at all. Because Jesus, the Son of God, came and took the body of a brown-skinned man in order to die for black-skinned men and women and white skins and yellow skins and red skins. He died for pantata ethne, every ethnicity, to break down the walls of partition. And now he asks his church to see the world this way to look and see one brotherhood in Jesus Christ. Not skin color, not language, but to see that anyone who calls Jesus my Lord is of the same nation and kingdom with us. Israel, you see, made the tragic mistake that we must avoid, the mistake of saying the kingdom's only for us and for our kind of people. The minute you start making that assumption, You're going to die spiritually. The church of Christ thrives when she looks outward, beyond her borders, beyond the barriers of rich and poor, beyond the barriers of skin color, and knows that the Lord is sending us to people who are waiting to meet our Lord, and first they need to meet us in order to hear about our Lord. I send you to all nations, he said. Thirdly, today I pick up the words, and this will be very brief, with what is in verses 19 and 20, worthy of a sermon all by itself. But what do we do to make these people into disciples? Well, it says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And I've said the point there is that all of God's word is a message to be both declared and obeyed by every true disciple. I'll say very briefly about baptism here. I think I'm going to speak about that in the month of August. But water baptism is commanded by Christ. It's commanded as an initiatory sign of discipleship, but never does the Scripture ever say that it is complete in and of itself as the way to fully become a disciple. You don't become Jesus' disciple by simply getting wet. And it's possible to get wet and end up not being a disciple. I think of the way western cattle ranchers round up great herds of cattle and the winter spring calves are born and they go out and, you know, there's a lot of times 
not all that many fences, and they round up the cattle that they think belong to them, and they put a brand on it. And they might possibly find that they put their brand on some calf that actually belongs to a neighboring herd. Well, that happens in Christianity. The brand of a Christian gets put on people who are not actually disciples sometimes. Jesus said there's got to be something more than just baptism, and he says it's, it's teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. You see, what separates a real disciple from one with a mere sign upon them is that this person observes in their life the teaching of the whole Word of God. They come to love the Word of God and the, and the theme of thus says the Lord, and they say, why, the Lord has said something here, and I need to obey it. They don't go to His Word and say, you know, I like this part. I think I'll do this, but I don't like that part. That can't be right. That's not teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple of Christ stands apart as a person whose entire life bows, bows obedience and living allegiance under all of God's Word. That's how we know that you're calling Jesus your Lord. Isn't it amazing? You know, Christ could, you know, some people say, and, and it actually has been said in the, in the history of the church, why yeah, early missionaries in the 19th century were, were told, why, you don't have to go to the depths of Africa. If God wants to make those people Christians, he'll make them Christians without you. How stupid! And how ignorant of what Christ commanded. Christ said, I will do this through you. I could do it without you, but I choose not to. I choose to do it through your weakness, taking my word and making it known so that they might hear of me and of Christ. Now, please note, never does the Great Commission say, you're going to convert them. Never does it say, your power is going to make them Christians. And in fact, we know that that miracle power of conversion and awakening and regeneration by the Holy Spirit belongs only to God, not to us. But we're his mouthpieces. We're his hands and feet. We're his bearers of mercy. We had a missionary here Wednesday night, Steve Rarig, who, who told us a phrase stood out from his presentation. Steve said, we missionaries get to do the easy work to prepare the way for God to do the hard things. That's right. We get to go in and put the point of the plow in the ground so God can plant a seed and bring growth in lives. And so it is that all of God's Word is a message to be declared and obeyed by every disciple. Fourthly this today, the very last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew comes to you now. A parting word from Jesus in this great command, and it actually branches off from being a command. Now it's a promise. And the promise is, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Who's with us always? Jesus Christ, God's divine Son. Jesus Christ, who is perfectly obedient to go in a lowly way to the cross and die for our sins. Jesus Christ, who was raised in the power of God. Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been delegated. I am with you always. I the one the Father has appointed, I, the one the Father has given every kind of power and final authority to, I 
go with you. Now that says to me that our success in missions is assured by Christ's presence with us for all time. You know, missionary work can be very discouraging work. The same as pastoring a church. It's a kind of work where you don't see immediate results. I've told many of you before, John Light and I both agree we love to mow our lawns. Why? Because in one hour, you get a very satisfying, visible result to what you've done. When you've worked all day, and, and could you say, well, here's the result of what you did. You don't know what the result is of what you did all day. And it's that way for missionaries. They work for years sometimes. There are stories of pioneering missionaries who spent decades, their whole careers, for a handful of converts, and you would say, what a waste of a brilliant life, of a dedicated person. And yet, you look back and you see that the work of that person was the foundation upon which reaching a whole nation later came in other generations. I believe that the work of world evangelism teaches us how puny and how weak we really are. We are forced to enter places where the people aren't like us. And maybe the people not only aren't like us, they don't like us. They don't even want us to be there. They wonder why we're there. They don't trust us. We don't speak their language. Their culture is altogether different. And we say, how am I ever going to do anything here? But we go in and patiently go with the whole Word of God and love those people and enter their culture and listen to them and tell them the truth that we know and live the truth that we know. And guess what? God knows the planned result that he has designed will happen in that culture or to that individual that you're seeking to influence. And it will be him who brings about the life-transforming result, not you. All you're asked to do is simply be faithful to what you're commanded to do. And the result will be guaranteed by the majestic presence of the risen, reigning, all-powerful Lord Jesus Christ who goes before you and beside you and in you. And everything you speak and everything you do in his name is empowered by that wonderful presence. Folks, do you actually believe that there is no day in history, in past history, that ever contained any more of Christ than this day does? I believe that. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit with us in his fullness. God taught us to call Jesus Emmanuel. God is with us. And so the power of Christ in his church is the same power today by which he raised Christ from the tomb. And it is resurrection power in which we do worldwide evangelism. The same Lord goes with us today who accompanied those 11 weak, trembling disciples. By the way, did you notice in this passage as they came to worship him, and this is after resurrection appearances, verse 17 said they worshiped him, but some still doubted. That's what we're like. We go out worshiping him, but still questioning, is this for real? Can God really do this? Yes, he can. And that's why this church has such a heavy investment in the work of world evangelism. That's why a third of our giving goes in that direction every year. 
Not because every single one of you is going to be a formal career missionary. But I believe with all my heart that every true follower of Christ must have a concern to invest, invest by giving, invest by prayer, and when we can, yes, invest even by going to people who aren't like us so that God can bring them to know him as Father and call his Son Lord. You see, a world Christian is anyone who is so gripped by the glory of God experienced in Jesus Christ that he or she prays the prayer of the prophet Habakkuk from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. When that prophet prayed this, let the whole earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as waters cover the sea. May it be so, by the power of God in his church, in his people, as we obey his great command. Amen. Father, I pray that you evermore lift our eyes as a congregation to understand we are not a holy club huddled together of like-minded suburbanites in this time and history But we are one unit of that vast army that you have called to bear your gospel in all of our weakness and fearfulness, to lift up the name of Christ that we have come to know, that many of all ethnic groups around this world might hear with all the modern means of communication, with every resource at our command, Father, use our weakness, that Jesus Christ as Lord may be known and praised. We ask this according to his command. Amen.